This is The Guardian. There was pomp and pageantry for King Charles's first ever King's Speech this week. But once again, Rishi Sunak has been forced to contend with his headline-grabbing Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. I have made my views clear. These are hate marches, and the police must take a zero-tolerance approach to anti-Semitism. It's pretty obvious that Suella Braverman's positioning herself for a leadership bid should the Tories lose next year. But which version of the party is most likely to avoid such a loss? Rishi Sunak's managerialism or Braverman's punchy populism? I'm Kieran Stacey, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today is the former Conservative Special Advisor, Salma Shah. Hi, Salma. Hello. So this week, it was the first King's speech for King Charles and also the first and maybe the last for Rishi Sunak. Um, One of the strangest things for me, though, was to hear the King in his first King's speech start to repeat verbatim some of Rishi Sunak's favourite political sound bites. The impact of Covid and the war in Ukraine have created significant long term challenges for the United Kingdom. That is why my government's priority is to make the difficult but necessary long-term decisions to change this country for the better. My minister's focus is on increasing economic growth and safeguarding the health and security of the British people for generations to come. So this was Sunak's first, but also his final chance, probably before an election, to show us what the Tories can do in power. But as many people said afterwards, The speech was both far longer than expected, but also had fewer bills in it. Samar, I've spent a while trying to work out what exactly Sunakism might be, what his governing philosophy is, apart from just not being Liz Truss or Boris Johnson. Do you think this speech tells us anything about him and and what he actually wants to do with being prime minister? So I think it's an interesting question because, of course, there's a lot of pressure on anything that is a sort of government moment, whether it's the King's speech or uh, budget statement, fiscal statement. And I think you're right. There wasn't anything that told us really what is what is the intention here? What is the overarching narrative? What is the vision, as people were so fond of saying in Westminster? What is the vision? What struck me about it was that it, a lot of bills in it, 21, but it all felt slightly bureaucratic. And to me, it felt like it was more of what the civil service had asked for rather than what he wanted or wants as prime minister to sort of bring um, his diagnosis to bear and the remedies of that. I think the difficulty for Rishi is twofold. One, his sort of senior career has always been off the back of some kind of crisis or emergency. He became chancellor after my former boss resigned uh, as chancellor. Your former boss was Sajid Javid, Sajid Javid the former chancellor. Yes, who, who resigned uh, over a dispute over advisors. Since then, he's basically had to deal with Brexit. He's had to deal with uh, the pandemic and uh, subsequent sort of Tory fallouts in terms of leadership contests and losing faith in Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. So developing a political narrative and a political thesis, I don't think has been possible um, in that time. But perhaps it's not as suited to his personality either. He does come across as slightly managerial, which in itself is no bad thing. It seems like it's a correction from what his what we got from his sort of very ideological predecessor. But defining what he is 
it doesn't seem to have happened. He doesn't seem to have had the space for it, but certainly he doesn't also seem to have prioritized it. So I don't think there is any point in defining what Sunakism is because I don't think he is in a space where he wants to uh, do that. It's just about management. Yeah, there's there's not such a thing as Sunakism, which, which maybe isn't a problem. I mean, Keir Starmer will say, for example, that people have had enough of conviction politicians and want someone managerial for a bit. And maybe Sunak's made the same calculation. I think that argument worked when Boris Johnson was prime minister and Keir Starmer was the source of, supposed to be the antithesis to him. I don't think that works when both leaders of both of the government and of the opposition are quite managerial. I mean, you know, you can't really tell the difference between Rishi and Starmer. And I think that's going to be a bit of a problem. So if if Starmer's not offering the vision piece, then what differentiates him? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting going into the next election to see both leaders saying, you know, long term uh, decisions you know, in, in the country's interests rather than ideology. But, you know, for me as well, what came through in the speech was, well, I've just been at the AI summit up at Bletchley Park, where the prime minister, probably about a year out from an election that he looks like he might lose, spent two days basically hobnobbing with the great and the good of Silicon Valley and a, and a few world leaders, talking about a very techie subject, and then rushed home from the summit to interview Elon Musk on stage in central London in one of the most bizarre events I think I've ever seen as a, a political reporter. This has led some people, Alice Thompson today in The Times, for example, saying they think he's checked out, that actually what he's doing is a few bits of tidying up, a bit of housekeeping, and what he's really got his eye on is a job in Silicon Valley, Ellen Nick Clegg. Do you think there's any merit in that argument? Look, I think, you know, there might be some truth to it, but I have very rarely come across a senior politician that doesn't uh, fight tooth and claw to keep the office that they're in. Because, you know, turning into Nick Clegg is not <laughs> is not exactly what... No offence to Nick Clegg. Uh, he's a rich and powerful man. <laughs> you know, he's, he's done well in life. Who am I, who am I to um, uh, besmirch that? But uh, in comparison to being prime minister, I think it, you still would fight tooth and claw and you're not going to be sort of as clear-sighted about your sort of path out of government if you are, are there and you still want to do something. So I, I don't totally buy that. I do agree with you that the Elon Musk interview perhaps wasn't the best look for him. It showed him in a weaker dynamic than I think his people should have allowed in terms of those visuals. What I do think is interesting is that in 50 years time, we're going to be super grateful that Rishi Sunak had that summit on AI. And he tried to do something interesting, which was pulling together world leaders and like-minded people to try and work out what this new regime and what this new technology is going to look like. And that was a really valuable thing. Was it the thing that he should have majored on? No, probably not. And there are other things that he should be doing. But I don't think that sort of negates the fact that it was an important thing to do. And what about the party now? We've had a bit of a reset. We had conference, then MPs were away for a bit. Now they've come together again for the King's speech. We've got the autumn statement coming in a couple of weeks. What's the mood among Tory MPs that you speak to? I think there's a, a, a resignation with some parts of the party. I think for others, it's a, it's an opportunity to sort of think about what's going to come next. And this is the most dangerous thing if you allow that uh, calcification to occur at the top of the party and top of the chain, is that people start thinking about what are they going to do and the agitation begins. And if you break down that discipline, then you do have people who are as I say, resigned on one side. And so you don't have your core support that's there to protect you and sort of go out and bat for you on, on the airwaves or in print. 
um, and then you allow a sort of uh, a different focus and a shift away from you in the centre to be able to to occur. And I think that is kind of a, a dangerous spot for the Prime Minister right now. So let's just talk about some of the specific things that were in there. Obviously, you worked at the Home Office under Sajid Javid. What did you make of some of the crime and justice announcements that were in there? My government will, keep, will act to keep communities safe from crime, antisocial behaviour, terrorism and illegal migration. A bill will be brought forward to ensure tougher sentences for the most serious offenders and increase the confidence of victims. You know, largely, as I say, it's sort of technical things that the civil service and the police and people like that require. There, I don't think there's anybody that's going to be uh, upset about the fact that they want uh, sentences to be tougher and to mean the sentences that they that are given custodial sentences. I think the difficulty around that is, you know, have they done enough to make something of it in the press and sort of uh, indexed on it in a way that actually makes people think, yes, they're serious about crime. I think the other thing that they go- they're going to have to consider, what then happens in the courts to support what they're saying in terms of sentencing? How are people being processed? And what does that also mean for prison places? So all of this has to have a sort of systematic view. So you can't just say that in isolation. There has to be that support that runs through it. And so I think that's going to be something that they may come under criticism for future, in future times. Yeah, well, it's interesting you talk about indexing on it because one of the ways in which you can index on an announcement like that is to create a dividing line with Labour and have Labour sit on the other side of it. But that I don't think is going to happen based on the actual details of what's in there. What I thought we might get in the speech was some more on this idea of banning tents for homeless people, because that would be more of a clear political dividing line. But it it wasn't in there at all after a weekend of stories about it. But I don't think that was ever government policy. This is the thing that's interesting about it. You know, government ministers went out and were sort of like, well, that's not government policy. And it was never intended to be. So so Sue Ella Bravman was tweeting all about it. She obviously is... wanted to, uh, to <laughs> highlight. But here's the thing. This is what I'm talking about in terms of people trying to then assume the sort of space in the vacuum that's being created. And, you know, I can't speak to what the Home Secretary's intentions are, but if I were very cynical about it, I would suggest that she does have an eye to what is happening in the future. And she is thinking about how she's going to position herself for a potential contest in opposition, if that's the way that the election goes. I think she she took a kernel of something, which is, you know, rough sleepers. There is a, there is a problem with them being uh, able to sl- sleep out with tents and not take up spaces in hostels for various reasons, very complicated reasons. But holding them accountable for it as a lifestyle choice is not something I think the government wanted to create as a dividing line. <laughs> and it certainly hasn't done very well. I mean, there's, like, there's a lot of people who just find that quite distasteful. Well, it was very interesting, I thought, watching Keir Starmer's response that he felt that that was a point on which he could actually take the opposite side of the argument and, and really fight. We have a party so devoid of leadership. It is happy to follow a Home Secretary who describes homelessness as a lifestyle choice. And believes that the job of protecting us all from extremists, the most basic job of government, is legitimate terrain for her divisive brand of politics. I thought that was one of the few moments where Labour backbenchers felt really 
energized by what what Starmer's response was. Yeah, but Starmer will have done that based on the fact that he understands where his electoral positioning is. You know, he's he's been so cautious. The front bench team has been so cautious to ensure that they are really closely aligned with the government on, on most things where they're aiming for their electoral coalition. So it's interesting that he feels able to push on this. Yeah, no, I agree. And and let's just go back to Suella Braverman for one moment. Um, she's obviously popular among grassroots MPs. As you say, she seems to be building some kind of nascent leadership campaign, perhaps unsurprisingly, given where the Tories are in the poll. But is she popular among the parliamentary party? And do you have a sense of whether her style of conservatism plays well with a broader electorate? So I think there are certain things with conservative voters that do- does play well. So certainly uh, her tough stance on things like the small boats issue, I think is important. I think she has to be very careful about the battles that she picks, though, because ultimately winning a Tory leadership contest, if that's where it gets to, is only one part of that that story. She is not going to create broad consensus amongst a wider electorate if she keeps targeting um, very hardline conservative messaging. And I think that's what Keir Starmer learned, you know, post-Corbyn. And I certainly think that um, Boris Johnson post-Brexit, you know, when he's talking about levelling up and expansion of the state and everything else, it shows that there is a lot of confusion around the traditional party lines and the separation as to what is actually going to play well. So you can be hardline on small boats, but not necessarily hardline on rough sleeping and homelessness. Those two things don't necessarily correlate in in the electorate's mind, or at least where you're trying to aim. So I don't think there's a clear understanding of where she wants to be beyond perhaps the parliamentary party and the conservative membership. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to stick with Suella Bravman, but this time we're going to be talking about pro-Palestinian protests and how the Met might police them. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about Suella Braverman and her views on homelessness. We're going to stick with the Home Secretary now as we try and figure out what exactly she's trying to achieve with her hardline stance on the pro-Palestinian protests planned for this weekend. We're recording this episode on Wednesday lunchtime and Braverman is engaged in something of a public spat with the head of the Met, Sir Mark Rowley, over whether the police should cancel those protests altogether. She has pretty strong views on the issue. As I said, I'm not going to get into matters which are operationally independent for the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. They need to make those decisions based on the facts and the evidence as they see them. But I have made my views clear. These are hate marches and the police must take a zero-tolerance approach to anti-Semitism. Sir Mark Rowley, however, is pushing back pretty hard. Here he is speaking to the News Agents podcast. What is um, a hate march? You'd have to ask the Home Secretary that. I mean, she's pick two words out of English language and strung them together in a way that's that's something that she's talking about I don't know whether she means everybody there or some of the people there that's not for me um, I'm held to account by politicians I don't hold them to account so it looks like now the only option if Suella Braverman wants to stop the marches would be to use the Public Disorder Act and actually take powers away from the Met and ban it entirely Summer, you worked in the Home Office. How big a step would that be? Did you ever get close to considering such a, such a move? Look, this is really, really difficult because on one hand, you, you want to respect and support freedom of speech and, and right to protest. 
I understand that from the Home Secretary's perspective, when you are thinking about protests and when you're thinking about the tribalism that's occurring as a consequence of the conflict in the Middle East and what's happening on our own streets and what that's igniting, you know, the security and intelligence services are going to be worried about what this could potentially do. The Met Police will be worried in terms of uh, what happens at, at the protests. I don't think even calling for a ban is a sensible position for the Home Secretary to take. She has to try and balance those freedoms and ensure that actually some of the anti-Semitic hate that we've seen at these protests, she has to ensure that the Met Police is able to curtail and respond to that effectively. But banning the protest, I think, and sort of raising this as a political issue, I think exacerbates the tensions. I just want to ask you one last thing. Um, we talked before about the idea that Suella Bravman is on some kind of manoeuvres uh, in terms of a leadership campaign. Do you think what she's doing right now is, as some Tory MPs say, is trying to get herself sacked? And do you think that would be a good idea for her positioning herself as a future leader? <laughs> It worked for Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a playbook being uh, looked at here. Look, this is going to sound horribly worthy, but I am still a, a traditionalist enough to think that actually if you do a good job and you serve your country and you do the best by the public, that is the thing that stands you in the best stead when it comes to when the time is right and it comes to this. I think people who overmaneuver, and I am a veteran of, many conservative leadership contests. I think people who overmaneuver early on, uh, they don't see the benefit of that because context is everything. And it's about when a contest comes, whether you've got the right skills, whether you've got the chops to be able to show that you can do it. And overmaneuvering in advance is not only detrimental to your own chances of success later, it's detrimental to far bigger issues than that. Well, that's a lovely, uncynical, optimistic note, I think, for us to leave you on. Thanks so much for coming in, Summer. Pleasure. See you again. OK, well, let's turn now to the Labour Party. I've moved down to Westminster. I am currently sitting in the Upper Reporters Gallery, just above the House of Commons Chamber. So apologies if there's any background noise. And I'm joined by my colleague, Alita Adu, who's going to talk to us about everything that's been going on on the Labour backbenches when it comes to Gaza. Hello. Hi, Kieran. <laughs> uh, so Alita, Imran Hussein, the MP for Bradford East, has just resigned from the front bench, saying he could no longer sufficiently in all good conscience serve as a shadow levelling up minister because he wanted to be a strong advocate for a ceasefire in Gaza. Well, first of all, you should probably tell us who he is, but also how big a moment is this for Labour? So um, Imran Hussain's been a Labour MP since 2015. Uh, he gained his seat uh, from the Liberal Democrats at that time. He's largely seen as a party loyalist. He has worked under Jeremy Corbyn's uh, leadership before, and he's obviously stayed on under Keir Starmer. So his resignation came to a massive surprise to many within the party, uh, given that he's tried his best to sort of, you know, work with his constituents who are deeply upset over the party's positioning, even though Keir Starmer has clarified uh, the party's new position over this conflict. I think, as he made clear in his resignation statement, he was very much deeply troubled by that 
LBC interview. Well, just in case anybody hasn't heard that LBC interview, as you call it, this was an interview in which Keir Starmer was asked, first of all, uh, whether he supported Israel taking action uh, in Gaza, which he said he did. And then the interviewer went on to ask him, was Israel justified in withholding electricity and water supplies from Gaza? And Keir Starmer seemed to say that he he did think that that was justified, although he's since tried to roll it back, including, as you mentioned, uh, a big speech in which he tried to heal over some of these rifts in the Labour Party. Now, Imran Hussein was MP for Bradford East, which has a lot of Muslim constituents, as you mentioned. A lot of Labour MPs have a lot of Muslim constituents. Do you think there are others who are going to follow here? Well, there They have been under immense pressure from their own constituents, many telling me they've received thousands of emails since this conflict began strictly on this issue. And many of them feel pressured because they're not able to attend to other sorts of issues, but mainly because they feel as though if this is something they believe in, definitely strictly calling for a ceasefire and not a humanitarian pause. Now that one of their colleagues has quit, many people are going to be questioning, well, do you really care about this? Is this really something that you stand for? A number of people have been watching about six particular front benches that have you know, been on resignation watch for the last three weeks, many of whom have become very silent over the last 12 hours because of Imran Hussein's dramatic move. Seems to me there are a couple of crunch moments coming. So there's an early day motion being signed by Labour MPs uh, over the next few days, which might call for a ceasefire. I think the SNPs also think of bringing their own motion in. And also, obviously, we're going to have big protests this weekend in London and Labour MPs have been told not to attend those protests. Are, the, are these the moments that you think are going to trigger further resignations and further splits within the party? Well, it's interesting because that early day motion initially uh, saw Nashar had also signed that. She's also a Labour front bencher. But I think it was on Tuesday uh, after the King's speech, a number of front benches were warned that if they did sign a fresh motion, they will be essentially punished. And that's when Imran was sort of like, well, okay, this is my moment to resign because I do really want to sign that. I think it would be very surprising to see many other front benches taking the lead and signing that particular motion as a means of resigning. I think uh, a point of contention will be the protests over this weekend. I think it's the fact that, you know, being limited to speak for what you believe in, uh, I think many people will find that unjust, given Keir Starmer himself has said this is a very tense and emotional issue. And this protest is likely to be bigger than any of the last few ones, both because the death toll in Gaza continues to mount, but also in a way the government has made it a bigger deal by focusing so much on it in this past week. So it will become, I imagine, uh, a purity test of certain Labour MPs, whether they attend a huge rally in support of Palestinians in Gaza. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but I lived in Bethnal Green for a long time. And I remember the battle for that seat um, where uh, George Galloway was able to take advantage of what Labour did in Iraq and really prize that seat away from Labour, which was a huge shock to the party at the time. And I guess like a lot of people, Rushnar Ali, the current Labour MP for Bethnal Green, for example, will be looking at that and worrying about what might happen to them at an election. Yes, and I think this is the fear that many Labour MPs, not just Muslim MPs within the party, are really trying to get across to the leadership. They feel as though this is an issue that's been bubbling to the surface for months, for years even, uh, given the party's you know, troubles. It's not solely Labour that struggled with issues like Islamophobia, for, for example. But I mean, there's been a lot of like 
you know, brewing anger and upset over a number of issues. And now this is one way that a number of Muslim voters, many MPs believe, are going to sort of use this as an attempt to maybe not back Labour and vote elsewhere or just not show up at uh, the ballot box, really. And, and what about the Conservatives? Are they just delighted at the moment to, you know, exacerbate these tensions or do they have problems of their own on this issue? Well, so far, they've been desperate to sort of show Kistama as not being as strong within his party and not being able to punish people as quickly as Rishi Sunak has. Uh, that's not the case, really. I think uh, Kistama is taking a much more sort of broader look at how he's dealing with discipline at this stage. But obviously, there are a number of uh, Tory MPs sort of trying to manage, uh, you know, discussing issues internally instead of coming out publicly. But we did see Paul Bristow, a former government aide, sacked a few weeks ago. He remains the only person so far that has uh, lost such a senior position within the Tories. So Right. But I know, and I sure, I'm sure you know as well, backbenchers, Tory backbenchers, I should say, who are concerned about where the government has got itself onto on this issue. But for now, Alita, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review. Preferably a nice one. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Kukutier, the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 